This is Rosen Institute's Your Law Firm, where Lee Rosen and Ned Days cover management, marketing, finance, and new technologies for building the practice you deserve. Here's Lee Rosen. It's good to be with you today from Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam, which lots of people still refer to as Saigon. I'm not sure how long it takes for the name of a place to really change in our minds. Maybe that only happens when the new people come along and replace the rest of us as we die off. I grew up as a kid hearing about Saigon in the news nearly every night, and the name of the city changed with the fall of the South Vietnamese government in 1975. That was a long, long time ago. But the hotel that I'm staying in is called the Park Hyatt Saigon. So I guess Hyatt Hotels is sticking with that name, at least for a while longer. Anyway, we flew over here from Hong Kong. This is our second trip to the city. We're revisiting a bunch of the restaurants and places that we visited the first time. We're having a great time so far, and we're in a city that has at least two names. It's time for your tech tip. I am mere weeks away from turning 40, and I can tell how much closer to death I am by how old someone has to be for me to actually consider them old. When I was 15, I assumed that anybody over 20 had been around for the signing of the Declaration of Independence. These days, I've convinced myself that 75 is the new 30. And staring at my own frailty in the face has made me realize that despite a rather ho-hum life, I actually have a lot of stuff that my saint of a wife would probably have to sift through and come to terms with what a rat's nest I've created of our financial, legal, and immigration documentation if I kick the bucket. Hopefully you have a will to cover the big ticket items, but we increasingly have more and more important information stored digitally on our computers, phones, and with cloud providers. For some of us, our most valuable output is sitting there on a hard drive or in the cloud. What happens to that when we're gone? I've been inspired by E.L. James' success at turning Twilight fanfiction into a billion-dollar enterprise, and I decided to take a shot at it as well. I went looking for some other literary property that was popular with the kids and could easily be turned into Ladywank. The obvious choice was, of course, Great Expectations, and my manuscript for Fifty Shades of Pip, as I've tentatively titled it, is pretty thrilling reading so far. But if I'm hit by a bus tomorrow, the world may never see it. I realize that not everybody has something this important on their eyes cloud. You probably just have photos of your loved ones, some boring legal documents or receipts, but the same principle applies. So how do you prepare for the inevitable and make access to your digital assets as easy as possible? Well, there are actually two parts to this equation that I'd like to cover. The first is the idea of a medical ID. If you're injured, incapacitated, or your coworkers find you on the floor of a foreign Airbnb because you partied a little too hard, it would be very helpful for medical personnel to be able to quickly get details like your height, weight, blood type, medications, and emergency contacts. Thankfully, this functionality is now built into most phones. If you're on an iOS device, go to the Health app, tap your profile icon in the upper right, and choose the Medical ID option. You can enter in the basics like your height, weight, blood type, as well as specifying emergency contacts like your spouse, family members, and more. Then make sure you've enabled the Show When Locked and Share During Emergency Call options. This will allow those details to be accessed from your lock screen and allow passing the details to certain municipal emergency systems if a call is made from your device. 
On Android devices, this can vary based on the manufacturer. Some have their own custom medical or health apps, but on the default Android system and on most Google devices, you can open Settings, scroll down and tap the Safety and Emergency option, and then from there, tap the Medical Information option to fill out medical info fields. You can add your name, blood type, allergies, medications, address, medical notes, and organ donor status. You should also see an Emergency Contacts option under the Safety and Emergency menu as well, where you can select who to notify. If you don't see those options, there is a free app called Medical ID available in the Play Store that will duplicate most of this functionality. And most fitness trackers and smartwatches have features to add this information to, so if you're usually wearing one of those around, be sure to enter your vitals so that it can be used by emergency services if necessary. But the second part, if you're too far gone, you will want to make sure that someone has access to your apps and data in the event of your untimely demise. If you're an Apple user, setting this up for data stored in iCloud is actually pretty straightforward using what Apple calls its legacy contact feature. If you are on a Mac or iOS device, you can find this in settings under the Apple ID icon by going to the password and security section. You'll see an option there to manage what they call your legacy contacts. It will walk you through the step of adding someone else with an iCloud account as a legacy contact and what exactly will be shared in the event of your passing, they will get a special key that can be sent by text message or printed. In the event of your death, people who have been designated as legacy contacts can present that key as well as a death certificate to Apple, and they will be granted access to most of the contents of your iCloud account, including files stored on iCloud Drive, your iCloud apps like pages, numbers, and keynotes, voice memos, call history, mail, contacts, photos, and Safari bookmarks. About the only things that aren't included are in-app purchases, movies, music, and books, and the contents of your keychain, so passwords to apps and websites. Google has a process called Inactive Account Manager for its services like Gmail, Google Drive, and Photos. You can set up what happens after a specified period of inactivity, like 12 months, and set up notifications for a few months beforehand so it doesn't trigger without you being notified in case you just forgot to log into your Gmail for a year. You can set auto-delete options, and you also have fairly fine-grained control over what is shared with each contact, unlike Apple's process, which is pretty much just all or nothing. You can nominate contacts who will be notified and given access after the period of time you specify, and it's all pretty automatic, which is quite nice. Microsoft is unfortunately the least straightforward of these providers. They have something they call their next of kin process where you can notify them about a deceased loved one, but the process essentially boils down to subpoenaing them for access. By default, they will shut down and potentially delete data from accounts that have been inactive for two years. So if you have a masterpiece sitting on OneDrive, you may want to make sure that somebody has the password. Luckily, I've stored most of my stuff on iCloud. So while I hope that my wife is sad when I pass, once she gets access to those 6,000 pages of WordPerfect 3.0 files about what Pip and Mrs. Havisham have been up to and hands them off to the publisher, she'll be wiping away those tears with $100 bills. I'm Ned Days, and that's your tech tip. And now for your moment of concise advice. I get questions about travel all of the time because of the way we live, and 
One of the questions that I get with pretty great frequency is, where should we go? Well, that leads to follow-up questions about how long should we stay there and how many places should we visit on a single trip. All of that gets complicated. You've got tough decisions to make when you have all these possibilities and all these options. So let me help you at least a tiny little bit with that today. So where should you go? I don't know. It beats me. We all have such different interests that you just need to pick something that appeals to you. We're not going to have time to go everywhere and see and do everything. That's just the way life works. So pick something that you're excited about and have fun with it. Now, I can sort of help you a bit with that question of how many places should you go on a single trip? The simple answer is this. Go to as many places as you like. It's all good, but... Give it careful consideration. Think it through before you go. Now, before we go further with this, let me just say that I've done it every which way. I've gone lots of places in a hurry, and I've gone a few places slow. I've done too much on a trip, and I've done too little on a trip. I've made all the mistakes. I've screwed it up in every way that you can imagine. And once in a while, I've done it just right, at least just just right for me. I really don't think there is a particularly right or a wrong answer. If you go into this with a positive perspective, simply looking to enjoy the adventure, well then, you're going to have fun on a trip, even one of those trips where everything goes wrong. I remember showing up at an airport to discover that the airline that we had a flight booked on, it was gone. It had disappeared. Nobody knew anything about this airline that we were booked on, but it all worked out and we flew off on a different airline. It was no big deal and it made for a good story. Thankfully, I have the flexibility to try out lots of different approaches to travel, but most of us, we have a week or two weeks for a trip and that's not very long when you consider all the logistics of getting from place to place. Let's say you've got a really good time set aside for a vacation. Let's say you've got a 10-day stretch, and that's pretty long for a lot of folks. You're taking the Friday off, and then you're going through the weekend, and all through the next week, and then through the next weekend, and you're getting back to your home on Sunday. So you've got this great 10-day trip. Well, if you drive to the beach like we used to do years ago in South Carolina from our home in Raleigh, well, a 10-day vacation feels like a really long vacation. We would drive down to the beach on Friday morning. We would check into the condo at three o'clock. We'd have the afternoon at the beach. And then we had eight uninterrupted days for the kids to play at the pool and go out on the sand and to whine and to cry and to complain. And then we'd wrap up our vacation and we'd drive home on Sunday and we'd recover a little bit and get back to work on Monday. And those trips, they were long enough. They felt like a really good time away from work. But if you shift gears, if you're going on a trip to somewhere further, for instance, if you're taking a trip to Europe from where we lived in Raleigh, keeping in mind that Raleigh is a lot closer to Europe than, say, the west coast of the U.S., well, that travel, that adds a considerable amount of transportation, of 
flying time for you to get started on your holiday. So Raleigh to Europe for a 10-day trip, we used to do that once in a while, and you get going on Friday, but mostly the flights are going to cross the ocean in the early evening, so you don't get going first thing in the morning on Friday. You typically head to the airport around 3 in the afternoon. You fly to somewhere like New York or Detroit or wherever to change planes. You catch your flight to Europe. You land in Paris or Frankfurt or Amsterdam or London. And if that's your destination, well, then you have arrived. That's great. But a lot of folks will go from there onto a third flight to a smaller city like Vienna or Budapest or whatever. And so basically, your Friday is gone and your arrival in Europe is early in the morning on Saturday, but you're in this awkward place that morning because you haven't slept very well on the plane. You've got to stay awake throughout the day to kind of reset your time clock. And if you're traveling with kids, you've got to keep the kids awake. And that's a whole nother challenge. So of your 10 day trip, we've now used up Friday and Saturday, and the trip doesn't really get started until Sunday. So if you count the days, we're starting the trip really on Sunday morning, and we're going to run through the following Sunday when we fly home. But some folks will leave even earlier. They'll head out on Saturday morning because they want to make sure they have a little time to readjust once they get home or because they're worried about flight delays and they don't want to be pushed into the next work week. They may have appointments and commitments and need to be at the office on Monday morning. So this 10-day trip starts to look a lot more like a six- or seven-day trip once you build in all all the travel and adjustment time. So it's six days of being a tourist, which is plenty of time, but here's where things for some folks get a little more complicated. They decide right in the middle of that six days to switch cities. Maybe they started in London and decide to take the train right in the middle of their trip to Paris. Or maybe they started in Amsterdam and decide to fly to Brussels. What they're doing with that decision is using up nearly a full day for travel in the middle of their six-day holiday. Well, when that trip is over, it's going to feel like you were moving around quickly, and that's fine if that works for you. Just be conscious of that decision you're making when you add that second destination into the mix. So when you plan your trip, you can decide to go fast or you can decide to go slow. It'll make a difference, but only to you and either approach is a good one. You just want to be cognizant of the decision that you are making. Lisa and I spend a lot of time snorkeling and scuba diving, and she tends to be a slow scuba diver. I tend to move a little bit faster. She hovers over things. She drills down. She looks deep. She studies corals and plants and she watches as the wildlife emerge from their little hidden spots. I tend to miss most of those small things as I swim along quickly looking for the big fish. We dive differently. We see different things. We both have a good time and both approaches are good because they work for us. If you visit London and Paris on your trip, well, you'll see Big Ben and Parliament and the Thames and a bunch of other great sights from your hop-on, hop-off bus. Then you'll zip 
zip over to Paris and you'll see the Louvre and the Eiffel Tower and ride another hop-on, hop-off bus, and you'll look back on that trip with fond memories. But if you picked one city over the other, if you spent your entire time in Paris, for example, well, you might dig in. You might find a bunch of interesting chocolate shops you'd never heard of. You might have some fascinating meals. You might end up in a conversation with the pastry chef at your favorite shop. Each approach to travel has merit, and they're all good. You just want to think through the decision you're making and the impact that that decision will have on the nature of the trip you take. So how many places should you visit on your trip? Well, now you've got a decision to make and something to think about. That's your moment of concise advice. Wrapping up from Saigon and Ho Chi Minh City, thanks for spending a few minutes with me and Ned today. We hope you have a great weekend and an even better week next week. Keep plugging away, moving forward, getting things done. You're on the right track. You'll get there, I promise. We're all in this together, and together we build better practices through better marketing, better management, better technology. Until next time, I'm Lee Rosen. Thanks for listening to Your Law Firm. Visit rosensrules.com for our free course on the 10 critical rules successful law firms follow.